This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Ennio Morricone, composer, died July 6th at age 91. Noted the week, nobody influenced the sound of movies more than Ennio Morricone. The Italian composer wrote the scores for some 500 films. His Oscar-nominated work included scores for Days of Heaven, The Untouchables, and The Mission. But he was best known for his music for the mid-1960s spaghetti westerns of director Sergio Leone, including A Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. They noted that in those terse, sparsely dialogued films, Morricone's inventive scores, incorporating tickling watches, buzzing flies, and the twanging Jew's harp, were less a backdrop than a featured player, creating tension, irony, and menace. A sharp break from typical Hollywood fare. The wailing ocarina theme of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was based on a coyote's howl. Said Morricone, all kinds of sounds can be useful to convey emotion. It's music made up of the sound of reality. He wrote music at age six and at 12 enrolled in the National Academy of Santa Cecilia, where he studied composition by day while secretly standing in for his father in clubs and music halls by night. The LA Times noted that after graduating in 1954, he went on to compose several serious pieces. But he married and soon realized that a composer's scant income wouldn't support a family. So he became an arranger of pop songs and scored his first film, Luciano Salce's Il Federale, The Fascist, in 1961. A fast worker, Morricone soon found himself in demand. Sergio Leone tapped him for 1964's A Fistful of Dollars after becoming entranced by a cover of a Woody Guthrie song Morricone recorded that incorporated surging violins, a cracking whip, and a chanting male chorus. The pair formed a tight creative partnership. And this is the part that amazes me. Sergio Leone would shoot scenes based on the music that Morricone had pre-written, and he made them as long as the score dictated. Morricone later explained, that's why the films were so slow. The economist noted that deep down, he knew that the music could make a film unforgettable. That was why Sergio Leone so often had him compose the music before shooting started, rather than the reverse, which is the way films are usually made. Or even insisted that the actors listen to the soundtrack to get them into character. When approached by a budding cinematic composer, he had just one piece of advice. Forget the film. Think of the record. And yes, we think of the record just about every week here on this program when we use that stirring little piece of Ennio Morricone for our featured The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Now, we do have a tenuous connection to that actual film by virtue of the fact that back in 2006, we were fortunate enough to interview the legendary actor Eli Wallach, who in the movie is The Ugly. During the interview, we pointed out that Sergio Leone's characters are somehow more realistic than those of many standard cowboy pictures. And we asked if his method acting approach was what director Leone was looking for when he cast him. Wallach said, 
Moloch replied, I never knew why he cast me. A man wrote a book about it, and he said it was because of a movie called How the West Was Won. In it, I threatened George Papard. I was a bandit, and he had his two little boys near him. I walked away, and using my finger, I pointed it as a gun and went crack at the two kids. When Leone saw that, he said, I want him in the movie. Of course, we're not sure to this day whether Wallach accepted that as being uh, the real reason he got cast, but it's a good story. And since we're already on the topic, this would be a great time for us to move into our feature, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It was a good week last week for the pendulum swinging back, perhaps, as regards political correctness, with the news that in an open letter to Harper's Magazine, 153 writers, academics, and artists spoke out against the rise of a culture marked by intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming, and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues into a blinding moral certainty. Signed by such prominent figures as Salman Rushdie, Gloria Steinem, Malcolm Gladwell, Margaret Atwood, and Wynton Marsalis, the letter decried a stifling atmosphere of enforced conformity that meets out hard punishment to those guilty of perceived transgressions, particularly on the topics of race, identity, politics, privilege, and gender. But according to The Week magazine, it was also a good week last week for political correctness. With the news that the Emory and Henry College in Virginia is considering renaming its sports team. Currently, they're known as the Wasps. The nickname was adopted in 1921 as a reference to the striped uniforms of E&H's football team. But college officials now say that because of its similarity to the acronym WASP for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the nickname could offend those not in the category. And you know, I just have to say, if you can't distinguish a stinging insect from an Anglo-Saxon Protestant, well, you know, you're being offended. Ah, I just it's probably fine with me. Then again, I am not a trustee at the Emory and Henry College in Virginia. Well, I'm offended that they're offended. Well, all right then, and most people would recognize you as a person of color. And uh, it was a bad week last week for not buying into the damn hype or at least so a 37-year-old Army veteran from Ohio said when he boasted last April that I'm not buying an effing mask. It turns out that he's apparently succumbed to the damn hype about the coronavirus. He died of COVID-19 on July 4th. Richard Rose tested positive on July 1st after visiting a crowded pool and bar in mid-June. After testing positive, he wrote in social media posts that he felt wore out and that I can barely breathe now. Well, it's sad to note that was then. He's not breathing at all currently. Perhaps it would have been better if he'd bought an effing mask. And it was an ugly week last week for workers, at least human workers, with the news that the pandemic has accelerated Tyson Foods' quest to replace human butchers with machines, according to the Wall Street Journal. Since 2017, the biggest U.S. meat company has invested $500 million in technology it hopes will soon lead to an automated deboning system capable of handling some of the roughly 39 million chicken slaughtered, plucked, and sliced. The work at Tyson's robotic lab, which opened last August, has only picked up since the pandemic, which has infected nearly 18,000 meat processing workers. Tyson's technicians are focused on teaching machines to recognize and quickly adjust to differences in meat, coloration, and shape. 
Frankly, we are not wishing them well in this particular endeavor. In fact, if we had a lot of time on today's program, we would talk a little bit about what's going on in meatpacking plants, and uh, there's some bad things happening. And frankly, there's so many things happening that we just, uh, we, we just, we just want to try and have a chuckle at. It is not an amusing item to note that the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Sitt, announced last week that he has tested positive for coronavirus. He's isolating at home. This makes him the first U.S. governor to report testing positive. Now, Sitt did attend Donald Trump's rally in Tulsa last month, which health experts have said likely contributed to a surge in coronavirus cases in Oklahoma. But the governor says he's confident he didn't contract the virus at the rally. Of course, there's always the possibility he caught it from someone else who did catch it at the rally. And frankly, the fact that there was a month interval between the rally and him testing positive still leaves him in the ballpark. The Oklahoma Health Commissioner, Lance Fry, said that uh, contact tracing has, has begun in the governor's case. I presume they're going to start with a rally. And apparently after an op-ed piece in USA Today from trade advisor Peter Navarro attacking Anthony Fauci about his knowledge on coronavirus... Trump realized that probably was an error. Before he departed for a trip to Atlanta, he was asked whether Navarro had gone rogue. To which Trump replied, well, he made a statement representing himself. He shouldn't be doing that. No, I have a very good relationship with Anthony. Who has now apparently reappeared in the press conferences which have resumed. Previously, Fiocchi had said in a Financial Times interview that he had not briefed Trump for two months. Fauci's evidently laughed off the incident. He told Reuters that he believed the people involved in releasing the list of things he'd gotten wrong was misleading because it did not include the entirety of Fauci's statements or other contexts. And he was really taken aback by what a big mistake that was. He simply called the White House criticism of him bizarre. And speaking of bizarre... And here's a quote we can't resist from historian John M. Barry. When you mix politics and science, you get politics. In his press conference, which I think was on the 21st of July, Trump now professes a newfound respect for the protective face masks he has seldom worn. In fact, he pulled one from his pocket in the White House briefing room. He just didn't put it on. The president also warned on Tuesday that the quote, nasty, horrible, unquote, coronavirus will get worse in the U.S. before it gets better. Of course, just two days earlier in an interview with Fox's Chris Wallace, Trump insisted when confronted with his own cringe-inducing comments about the coronavirus, quote, I'll be right eventually, unquote, adding, I'll be right eventually. You know I said it's going to disappear? I'll say it again. This prompted Richard Wolff, writing in The Guardian, to say that they say a stopped clock is right twice a day, but this broken timepiece will only be happy when all the clocks have stopped. Well, let's take a moment to examine a meme sent to us. Well, actually, it was posted. It wasn't really specifically sent to us, but it was posted by a friend, Janice, which came under the heading, Are Fabric Masks Sensible? Which the subheadline was, I will try to explain it. Cartoon 1. If we're all running around naked and someone pees on you, you are wet immediately. If you wear trousers, some of the pee still gets through, but not so much, so you're better protected. But if the one peeing on you also puts on pants, then the pee remains only with him, and you will not get wet at all. 
This concluded with, now what do you think? Are fabric masks sensible? Now, when the president professed his newfound respect for protective face masks, he did not, at least not yet, say that nobody's more in favor of face masks than I am. That's probably only just a matter of time, isn't it, friends? Now, we reported on this show, I believe, last week, the New York Times said, uh, well, they were reporting on Trump's statement that he aced a cognitive test. But it's just the White House wouldn't release any details on it. But we should note that in that press conference on July 19th, Trump was specifically asked if he thought Joe Biden was senile. This was his response. I say he's not competent to be president. To be president, you have to be sharp and tough and so many other things. Chris Wallace asked, what are these so many other things, pray tell? Said the president, he doesn't even come out of his basement. They think, oh, this is a great campaign. So he goes in. The Guardian noted that it wasn't clear who they were or what he was going into, but it seemed totally clear to our sharp and tough president, who is also so many other things. Trump then added, I'll then make a speech. It'll be a great speech. And some young guy starts writing, Vice President Biden said this, this, this. He didn't say it. Joe doesn't know he's alive, okay? He doesn't know he's alive. To which the Guardian couldn't resist adding, it may be tempting to blame all of this on that young guy whose writing clearly leaves a lot to be desired. But in fact, it's the old guy in the Oval Office we should be worried about. He doesn't know that he's dying out there. And since we're talking about Trump's mental capacity and are going to do so for the next few minutes, let's stray into the part of the interview where he was asked about the Confederate flag. Trump claimed that people flying the Confederate flag were, quote, not talking about racism, unquote. But when he was asked about removing the names of Confederate generals from U.S. military bases, Trump could only think about race. He asked, we're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? What are you going to name it, Chris? Tell me what you're going to name it. To which he added, and you just have to love this, so there's a whole thing here. We won two world wars. Two world wars, beautiful world wars that were vicious and horrible, and we won them out of Fort Bragg. We won them out of all these forts that now they want to throw those names away. To Richard Wolf and the Guardian added, Ah, yes, those beautiful world wars, so vicious and horrible, all at the same time. Now, we're kind of in, we're kind of in Guardian mode this week. Uh, last week, the New York Times quoted Trump as reporting, self-reporting on his Walter Reed Medical Center cognitive test that the doctors were very surprised. They said, that's an unbelievable thing. Rarely does anyone do what you just did. But referring to Biden said he should take the same test. In an interview on the 19th, Chris Wallace decided to challenge the president a little bit on this claim. As the president started boasting about his results, Wallace laughed and said, I took the test too when I heard you passed it. It's not, well, it's not the hardest test. They have a picture and it says, what's that? And it's an elephant. This, according to Trump, was misrepresentation. Yes, the first few questions are easy, he conceded. But I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five questions. I guarantee that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. So, asked Max Benwell in The Guardian, what is the test and what are those last five questions that Trump claims really are very difficult? The test in question is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. It was created by neurologist Ziad Nazrini in 1996. 
And talking to MarketWatch this last week, Nazarini stressed that the test is supposed to be easy for someone who has no cognitive impairment, stressing that this is not an IQ test or the level of how a person is extremely skilled or not. The test is supposed to help physicians detect early signs of Alzheimer's. Now, I do want to stress that anyone who's a physician and has to do a history and physical on a patient, which at some point all physicians do, you have to include in this history and physical a a mental status assessment at some point. You seek to find out whether the person is oriented as to who or she is, where they are, and what the time is. You have to assess their ability to organize things going on around them, assess their memory, assess their ability to calculate things. You don't need to be terribly, terribly sophisticated. You just need to have an idea of where the patient stands. This Montreal Cognitive Assessment is just a a very rudimentary, simple, standard form with which, you know, one can do this. In this particular test, they start out having you draw a line between numbers and their equivalent letters. Like you start out with 1 and you go to A. Then you go to 2 and, well, it expects you to be able to go to B and then 3 to C, 4 to D, 5 to E. Most people have no trouble with that. Apparently Trump didn't either. In this test, you're asked to draw a cube, which can give people with a little bit of dementia a surprising amount of trouble, and a clock face, which is, I always thought, uh, a dead giveaway. When someone makes a mess of trying to draw a simple analog clock face, you know you've got problems. Or Mr. Millen adds, perhaps, a millennial. In fact, Mr. Benwell, in his write-up of this, actually said, Call it what you will, millennial-itis, lockdown brain, but this was actually a slight challenge for me as I can't remember the last time I looked at a clock that wasn't on my phone or laptop. Good God. To which he added, so yes, it took me a second to remember the minutes are all multiples of five. Then the test presents you with the animals. A camel, a lion, and a rhino. Although it should be stressed that some versions of the test do substitute an elephant for a rhino. The test then asks you to subtract serial sevens starting with the number 100. It's a very standardized thing to do in mental status test. But then we come to what Trump described as the hard part of the test. As you will remember, uh, Trump actually bet, as you recall, Trump bet Chris Wallace he couldn't even answer the last five questions. Couldn't even answer them. But Max Benwell pointed out correctly, for a mentally healthy person, the last five questions should be as simple as the rest. You're asked to repeat a sentence out loud. You have to spot the similarities between different objects, such as a train and a bicycle, or a watch and a ruler, you know, modes of transportation and measuring devices, respectively. The average person has no trouble doing this. We presume Chris Wallace would have no trouble doing this, or Joe Biden would have no trouble doing this. But then again, to be fair to the president, we did leave out the final question which I suppose could be a real stumper. To pass this test, you have to be able to say what the date is. Now, we have a couple ways of looking at this. Did the president sort of squeak by in the test and think, boy, that was really hard? The other question is, did he ace it at all? We have Donald Trump's statement that he aced the test, but the people administering the test have not come forward to tell us whether he did well or not. I'd like to know. I would love to see a Donald Trump-drawn clock face. Personally, I think this is a lot more important than the president's tax returns. Would it be possible to honestly 
give the president a test of his mental acuity and report honestly on the results? I think the public deserves that. Let's quote again from that Washington Post piece by Greg Sargent that we talked about on last week's show. Said Sargent, Trump has been widely and repeatedly informed by his own and other experts for many months that his failure to take the coronavirus more seriously could have utterly catastrophic consequences, that it could result in widespread suffering and needless deaths. It isn't enough to point out that Trump repeatedly ignored that advice. What's important is that Trump has repeatedly seen the predicted consequences of those failures and is seeing it right now. Yet, he still continues not just to downplay the severity of the virus' continued toll, but also to actively discourage current efforts to mitigate the spread. So my question is, what role does dementia perhaps have to play in this? Sargent noted that Trump has shown zero signs of even trying to grapple with the cause and effect behind these new circumstances, referring to rising, uh, rising cases across many states, and instead continues to lie about them, falsely claiming we have the lowest mortality rate in the world, falsely claiming that 99% of cases are totally harmless, and absurdly claiming the virus will disappear which he did last Sunday again. Now, there's a lot of data out there that shows that what the president says is nonsense. And we want to again quote from Jay Rosen, who said, The battle to keep Americans from understanding what went on from January to April is going to be one of the biggest propaganda and freedom of information fights in modern U.S. history. So much is public that the manufacture of confusion will have to be massive. We've been predicting on this show for many weeks, months, in fact, that there is going to be some uh, monkeying with the data. I'm looking at a copy of USA Today right now that shows to show the number of coronavirus cases in lots of zip codes across America. And what strikes me is that half the states have none. In other words, there's no reporting from places like Louisiana, which we know was hit pretty hard a few months ago. And if you're not concerned about the fact that hospital data related to the coronavirus pandemic will now be collected by a private technology firm rather than the Centers for Disease Control, a move the Trump administration says will speed up reporting, well, we we think you should be. Some experts have expressed suspicion and concern about the decision. Dr. Thomas File Jr., President of the Infectious Disease Society of America said, the data are the foundation that guide our response to the pandemic. Collecting and reporting public health data has always been a core function of the CDC. Gregory Koblenz, biodefense expert at George Mason University said, the change appears to be consistent with administration moves in recent months that has sidelined the CDC from the role it has played in other epidemics such as being the public's primary source of information. Said Koblenz, we know the administration's been trying to silence the CDC. Now it looks like the administration might be trying to blind the CDC as well. Dr. Robert Redfield, head of the CDC, who we talked about in in that Rolling Stone article from May as one of the main people responsible for this hapless U.S. response, has said the agency will retain access to all the data, Here's the part I really like. He also said the change will enable it to focus on collecting other data, like information from nursing homes. I don't know, maybe baseball stats, too, once the, once the major leagues get rolling again. Taking a look at all of this, The Economist noted this week that predicting the course of a virus has been remarkably difficult. When Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, the Republican governors of Florida and Texas, delayed 
stay-at-home orders in March, they seem to be inviting the virus to spread. That wave has now arrived as predicted, only three months late. Governors did not heed the warning signs. A rise in the share of tests coming back positive, reports of increased hospitalizations until it was too late. Doug Ducey, the Republican governor of Arizona, began reopening his state in early May when there were around 400 new cases being detected a day. He began backtracking two months later after caseloads had swollen tenfold to around 4,000 a day and 90% of the intensive care beds in the state were occupied. Ducey, like many Republican governors, had also barred citizens in his state from imposing their own mask-wearing requirements, only reversing himself on June 17th. Now, it's true there has been a flattening of the curve of the death rate versus that of new cases, but The Economist notes that why that should be can be explained by four factors. First is more testing, more cases detected. Second is the evidence suggests that younger adults are behind the latest surge. In Florida, the median age of COVID-19 patients dropped from 65 to 40. Third, there's usually a lag of several weeks between the patient contracting the illness and when the patient's death is reported to state authorities. And fourth, doctors seem to have become better at treating severe cases, reducing the death rate even for those who must be hospitalized. There were a lot of parties in America on July 4th. Add three weeks to July 4th and you've got July 26th. We'll be able to report on... uh, what seems to be happening right about then on next week's program, and I don't expect it to be good news. we got to lighten this up and find some good news here as we go to break. I guess we can cite the fact that Trump has demoted his campaign manager, Brad Parscale. Parscale managed the digital portion of the Trump campaign back in 2016 and uh, did all too good a job of it. The good news in all of this, I suppose, is that Trump scapegoater that he is, <laughs> blamed Parscale for the uh, flop of the Tulsa rally and demoted him. But the bad news is he's staying on to do what he does best, managing the campaign's digital apparatus. Let's close with uh, the New Yorker's Shouts and Murmurs section referring to the lexicon for a pandemic by Jay Martell. And yes, here's some new words for the pandemic, such as germaphobe. Well, formerly that meant crazy people like Howard Hughes. Now it means everyone except crazy people. And there's mask hole, an individual who wears a mask in a way that makes it completely ineffective, e.g. below the nose, under the chin, or on the back of his head. And finally, overdistancing. That's when the guy in front of you in line has a metric understanding of the six in six feet, allowing 20 feet to open up between him and the next person in line which then allows others to interpret that next person as the end of the line and to cut in front of you. Anyway, yeah, don't be a mask hole. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.